Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a super exciting guest, Jeff Hudson, one of my favorite practice areas, estate planning, and he runs his practice out of Orlando Family First Firm and very excitingly has grown over 163% in the last couple of years, uh, putting him at pretty high up in the Law Firm 500. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Jeff. Absolutely, Jan. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I wanted to kind of start stuff up. Been an interesting couple of years for uh, for estate planning as a whole, to say the least. But I wanted to kind of step back and like you know take it back to the beginning. So what ended up getting you into estate planning as a practice area back in the day? Sure. So I would say an answer that is not common among lawyers, but my mother was a physician, mm-hmm. and I was a firstborn, so naturally I was going to go to medical school. I was in college taking pre-med courses and realized I hated sciences. So tried to figure out what I was going to do with my life and took the LSAT, did well, went to law school. Obviously, uh, growing up having, you know, physician parent didn't have a real positive view of lawyers. So, you know, thinking ambulance chasers, all that kind of stuff. So what could I do? Well, I could, you know, help people protect their things, you know, preserve their legacies, that sort of stuff. So that's ultimately why I went to Emory uh, University up in Atlanta, because they have a good estate planning program up there, then came back down and uh, focused my practice on doing estate planning and then added elder law uh, later on. Okay, that's awesome. I mean, did you guys have any experience like kind of growing up around just like, I guess the bad things that would happen when people do you think that having a physician as a mom, and like the death and like you know, incapacity and that kind of stuff had any effect on your choice? You know, I will say something that did have an effect on my choice was that uh, <laughs> so I was at a stoplight and this is probably about maybe eight months before I left for law school. I was at a stoplight, light turns green, the person in front of me doesn't go. I take my foot off the brake and tap them. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't a hard anything, just tap. And so I, you know, she pulls over, I follow her, get out, look at her bumper, it's fine. My bumpers, every, the cars are fine. She's like, okay, well, I don't think we need to call the police. Let's just give me your information. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Give her the info. About a month later, we get a demand letter for $85,000 from her attorney. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, you know, fast forward to the end, it ended up settling for 5000 Yeah. That the insurance company paid. But it made me realize that, hey, there's a lot of risk, uh, you know, when you're out there just living life. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because it's like, I think that and the, the stuff that, that your parents just like, yeah, you've definitely seen like the bad side of, uh, I guess, the litigious nature of our society too. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You don't run into a lot of people that go, I mean, it's kind of a story that we see sometimes where people go into litigation or one of like the crazy, like, you know, stressful practice areas and then find the way to estate planning, but you were pretty much estate planning, you know, pretty much from jump, right? Yeah. And then did you end up going into practice right after law school or just by yourself or did you end up um, like, you know, warming up with working somewhere else? So I graduated a really great time. It was 2008. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I actually went to work for another law firm, worked with them for about six months before they shut their doors, went and found uh, work with a solo, worked with him for about another 10 months before the economy kind of took its toll on him and he couldn't afford to keep me either. That happened a week that he let me go a week after my wife and I closed on our first house. Oh, geez. So we had no savings. Um, you know, she wasn't making a lot of money. She's actually a technician. I mean, you know, good money, but not crazy. So 
you know, it was enough to kind of pay our base bills. And while I tried to figure out what I was going to do next, looked around, the economy was hemorrhaging lawyers. Hmm. So, yeah, there were people willing to work, you know, 10 years experience, willing to work for 35,000 bucks, just to, you know, it, it was almost impossible for me to compete in that market. So I had a buddy who said, well, you know, I could send you some workers comp cases. It's not too difficult. I can kind of help you through it if you open your own practice and, you know, it doesn't pay a lot, but that's what I ended up doing to start out. Okay. Gotcha. So we got some workers comp cases coming in, but um, you know, your, your back is basically against the wall financially at this point. And um, yeah. I wanted to kind of get into this too, because you know, on the pre-call we talked about, you know, one of the things that was your, your favorite parts about the, the business is, is kind of the sales and marketing. So let's talk about some of these first clients. Like, so how'd you end up uh, drumming up business and, uh, back in the day? <laughs> so the best way I can describe it is that I was really willing to take, I wasn't established enough to be choosy. So I had to take a lot of, you know, kind of bottom of the barrel. I did a lot of networking with other lawyers. So I got referrals from the stuff that nobody wanted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've only over the last few years been able to kind of be in a position to just turn away businesses. It doesn't feel like it's a good fit for us. Mm -hmm. But I kind of, I, I will say that having handled so many challenging cases, crazy fact patterns, all that sort of stuff has made me and our firm very, I guess I'll say it gives us a very good uh, foundation to handle the cases that we handle now. And we still will take lots of cases that other law firms won't take. And we handle them really well because we just have that experience of kind of no matter how crazy it is. You know, one of my first paralegals after about a month of working for me, she comes into my office and she looked me in the eye and she goes, I don't know what it is, but trouble finds you. <laughs> and it seemed like all the crazy cases would always end up in you know our lap. I mean, you know, just as an example, like we had to get a birth certificate for a girl who had never had a birth certificate because she was born at home and she was 11 yeah. years old. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So you start thinking about that. I'm like, well, how does she go to school? How do you register for school? She doesn't have a social security number, you know? Yeah. They're like, oh, well, we homeschool her. I'm like, okay. How do you file taxes? Oh, she's our seven. So we can't claim her as a deduction anyway. <laughs> okay. So let's try to sort of, I'm like, did these people steal a baby? You know, like that, these are things coming going through my head. But you know, they had a bunch of you know OB records showing that the week before the child was born, she was okay, and they were kind of like, "I don't need the government to tell me I've got a child." Type people, you know. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, they were trying to get our health insurance, and so we had to go through all this craziness. But that's just like an example of the crazy stuff that we ended up handling over the years. Okay. Well, it's really interesting too, because it's kind of funny, like a lot of the times too, it's it's definitely a tough way to like scale a business, but it's like, even if those things are not either like paying well or, or in the position where it can scale really well, it's like they pay really well in experience, right? Like I'm yeah. sure that the education that like you and the team got over those years of dealing those crazy cases, you probably don't have anyone going to you these days, Jeff, and say, yeah, hey, that, that's, that's not in the manual. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know how to handle right. that, right? Yeah. That's the fortunate thing is I will say that, you know, I mean, we have about 35 employees and between or comp team members and between the 35 of us, there's very, very, very little that we don't know or can't figure out, you know, just in, in our, and we keep our practice areas very narrow now and do those things, do those things well. Long gone are the days of taking 11 year olds with no birth certificate, <laughs> but I will say that, you know, we feel very confident, in, you know, in, in our arena and even, you know, in our geographic area that we have a level of expertise that just nobody else can match. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's also the expertise and also the willingness to deal with the uncertainty too. Like that's kind of a hard thing to come by and definitely like a hard thing to reinforce in terms of like your team and stuff too. So like you know, major kudos on that, but I want to talk a little bit about, so, okay. So we, we've had the stage where we're taking some of these kind of, kind of one layers of clients call these, but um, at what point did you start like scaling up the marketing and, and going beyond the networking and stuff? So we were able to build a pretty decent size practice, you know, probably somewhere in the half of you know, a little over half a million dollar annual revenue just by me doing that, you know, going out word of mouth, taking people to lunch every single day. You know, that was probably my main form of marketing was just taking people out to lunch and connecting with them. And that's really just a numbers game. You know, mm-hmm. some of you guys will send to you, some won't, but the more at bats you get, the more hits you get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I did that for quite a while. And then it was 2016 that I hired a full-time marketer. That is kind of a lengthy story, but the gist of it is she was working for basically a competitor and didn't have an enforceable non-compete. They were out of a different geographic location. I had her come over to you know work for me. They obviously were unable to enforce a non-compete and didn't try. And she took her existing book of business and brought it to us. So that was really kind of the first step that we took that allowed us to kind of move our marketing beyond what I was able to do. Okay. And as far as kind of those first things, too, I love to kind of dig into this because I honestly think one of the hardest transitions that any law firm makes is going from referrals to something that's not necessarily, you know, dependent on shoe leather and, and like yeah. lunch bills and stuff, right? So what did you guys focus on on those first days? Because for anyone in the in the the audience right here, that's kind of at that stage too. I think this is just like a super critical transition. Yeah. So it was really a, a combination of two things. It was doing presentations, workshops, that sort of stuff. Kind of the, you know, it gets a little dependent on my time because we're doing a lot of the stuff in person these days. You know, we're able to kind of have the quote unquote, the evergreen, you know, workshops and that sort of stuff. I mean, there was a lot of, for lack of a better term, shoe leather from that marketer. You know, she was going to making introductions, going and explaining our value propositions to those people. And then it was a healthy dose of just kind of the social media content marketing, mm-hmm. just to, you know, I think the beautiful thing about content marketing isn't necessarily going to draw in new clients of an, in and of itself. But I do believe that it has the ability to bring in referrals from existing clients by keeping you top of mind with them, reminding them of what you do on a regular basis, you know, whether that's social media or, or you know, newsletters and things like that to you know, stay up there so that when they do have a friend or family member who has a need that you can solve, they're thinking, oh yeah, I just I just heard from Jeff. You know, I got the guy for you. Mm-hmm. So those were the things that we did. You know, we have on and off used some online marketing companies, vendors, had kind of mixed results with that. We're in the process of taking another swing <laughs> that uh right now, but that's kind of something that's um that is very much in the works. So I can't sit here and tell you, oh yeah, we've had X level of success with that. Yeah. So it was your marketer uh, taking potentially a partner out to get access to their audience, right? Correct. Yeah. So in a lot of cases, it was going to the people who deal with our ideal clients every single day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, instead of me, so, you know, and this is specific to the area of our Medicaid practice, you know, mm-hmm. that part of the elder law firm where we're getting Medicaid for seniors and nursing homes. In Florida, we have a lot of people in nursing homes. We have a lot of seniors here. Yeah. So... Knowing that, you know, we would go to senior health companies, 
whether that's a residential company, whether it's an in-home company, whether they're geriatricians or hospitals or those you know, places who are going to deal with seniors. And we would talk to them about how we could help their clients, but also help them. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the most powerful marketing messages when you're talking to referral partners is not what you do for their patient, but how you make your referral partner's life easier, make them look better to their boss, make their job more seamless, the more stuff that you can take off their plate. So if you have a really powerful message that demonstrates not, hey, we're going to do good for your client, obviously, or but more importantly, we're going to make your life easier. That becomes a very compelling message and, you know, something that a lot of people bite onto. Well, yeah, it's interesting too, because like, if you have a situation where it's like truly complimentary, it's like, you know, people are coming to you for the same reason they're coming to a lot of these same people, right? It's like, they want to be taken care of. And whether that's, uh, you know, the person who's going to be changing their sheets and maintaining their, you know, their apartment, or it's, you know, their, their legal needs and making sure everything's taken care of, you know, both of you guys benefit from having that kind of a situation, which is super cool. But I also think it's really interesting. These seem like, like a lot of kind of like non-conventional things, because when we talk to estate planning attorneys, a lot of times it's really, you know, block and tackle financial advisors, accountants, like that kind of yeah. stuff too. But did you guys have more of like a, and, and how did you guys kind of adapt the strategy to do these a uh, little bit more like unconventional partners, so to speak? You know, my experience with a lot of the financial advisors that I met with, spoke with, was that they were looking for a lot of like one-to-one relationship. You know, you, you give me a referral, I'll give you one, kind of back and forth. and. I have a couple advisors that, you know, I have close relationships with and refer to me and, you know, I refer back to them. But but the problem, I guess, from that mentality was that, you know, one of my referrals might have a lifetime value of 10 of your referrals to me, mm-hmm. you know, because with we what we do, it's mostly, you know, just flaffy, transactional. Yeah, there may be updates down the line, but that's questionable. So I just did not feel like the volume that I was looking for, I could get from financial advisors, CPAs, any of that sort of stuff. And I should say, I wasn't able to do that. I'm yeah. sure some people are, you know, but where I wanted to grow, I didn't think I could do with just those advisors, which prompted me to look to, hey, what are other areas that we can grow referrals in our services? And, you know, with the Medicaid slash elder law side of things, that was a a much more untapped market, if you will. There was a lot of opportunity there and there weren't a lot of people filling that need. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because like, you know, if it's kind of a one-to-one sort of situation, like, you know, you're not really getting any leverage on that relationship. That's just taking people out to lunch with extra steps at that point, right? Yeah. But, you know, maybe connecting the dots a little bit on some of the the content marketing stuff, which uh, I didn't follow up on last time, but like, you know, having that intermediary step, right? So it's like, you've got the social media we have, and I, I definitely want to dig into how you guys have gotten that apparatus up and running and, and, and under control for itself. But it's like, it's so much easier to say, hey, check out this presentation, check out this blog post, check out this video, then hey, like you got to have lunch with so-and-so. Because there's pressure on both sides of that too. Like it's, you know, it's not convenient for you guys from your time. And it's also like the person like, look, they know what's going on. You set up an appointment with somebody and, you know, you kind of get the opportunity to have a little bit more of a a date before you get married for these situations. But okay. So I want to kind of dig into the content stuff too. I'm super fascinated about the presentation stuff. So when you ended up getting these things together, how'd you end up developing your content for that? Was that something that you guys had been working on for a while? Or like, how'd you end up getting a presentation that worked for you? 
Oh, it was horrible at first. <laughs> okay, that's that's how, yeah. Everything in Dallas <laughs> was terrible. Uh, you know, just uh, I feel so frequently, and I fell into this trap that lawyers want to impress people with how much they know. Mm-hmm. You know, and people, frankly, do not care how much you know. They want to know if there's a problem out there that they already have that you can solve it. And if they don't know that they have that problem, they want to know if whatever you're talking about is really relevant to them. And Mm -hmm. so you need to, you know, clearly demonstrate that they actually do have a need for your services and that you can fill that need. So at the beginning, I'm just up there like trying to be a law school professor. Right. And sure, we had great attendance. Everybody said it was super informative, but we weren't getting a lot of conversions. And over time, I just continued to refine and refine. I paid for courses to teach you how to do a better job of giving people what they need in a way that helps them see that they need to take action on that. And, you know, just through researching and watching and paying for resources, we refined that process to the point that, you know, now when we have workshops, a lot of people are then very interested in moving forward with our firm after we talk to them. Okay, gotcha. I know this is maybe a crazy question, but like, you know, if you talk about, if you take a presentation that you guys are putting on today versus the presentation that you guys were doing in the beginning, what would you say is the biggest difference or like, in your opinion, like what's like the biggest lever uh, over the years that you guys have picked up for anyone who might be considering doing something similar? Uh, It is so much shorter now. Interesting. Okay. How how long do you guys go for yours? I don't like going more than 15 minutes. Wow. 15 Um, minutes. Well, for the online stuff, for the online, like in person, I'll go for 30 to 40 because otherwise it feels like, you know, like, why did I drive all the way out here? Right. You know, and I try to have a healthy amount of Q&A at the end, uh, which I kind of love because that's where I feel like that's where I get to show off how much I know. Right. Because when I'm taking unsolicited, you know, just I, or let me not unsolicited there very much like, hey, ask me <laughs> questions. But having people you know, just off the cuff ask questions that I wasn't prepared for and knowing the answer to those, that's, I feel like, the most powerful way of demonstrating how much I know. Because I don't know what's coming. But I'm able to answer. So in person, it's a longer thing. But you know, I mean, with the online, you know, I don't have a lot of. I don't want to use the word patience. Maybe I don't have patience. Maybe that's true. But uh, I don't have a lot of, you know, I don't know. I guess ability to just sit there and just watch a video. Like I can't stand YouTube. I, I'm. I guess I'm the craziest person in my generation because everyone's always sending me YouTube videos saying, "Hey, you got to watch this or check this out." I'm like, I don't. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Like five minutes. I I can't pay attention that long. So I try to keep mine kind of shorter and just kind of really make it clear about what the problem is that we can help and what that help looks like. And so for people who come with that problem, it's very clear that it's a pitch directly to them. They're listening saying, oh my gosh, this guy knows exactly what my issues are. He knows exactly what I'm going through. He knows exactly the result that I want. You know, and 10 to 15 minutes is plenty of time for somebody to get that. And when you feel seen on that level, you know, it's really easy to connect to that company and say, geez, you know what? This person understood me. They understood my problem. They understood the whole picture, the way I can't sleep at night, the things I'm talking to my spouse about, they know it all. And so then it becomes a no brainer as to who am I going to choose to help me solve this problem? The people understand it. Yeah. Do you remember that? And like, I think it's, you reminded me of this, uh, what's that old quote? I think it's Jim Rohn or something like that. It's like, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Okay. So like, okay. And then as far as the, how the kind of setup works today. So I, and I, you know, you mentioned you had 35 uh, team members that are working with you right now. Are you still the person who's on deck for most of these presentations or have you scaled this out to other people in the team? Like what does that whole, you know, marketing apparatus look like these days? 
So the answer is I had scheduled them out to other team members. We dialed that back. So I work with a coach who tells me that, you know, I'm basically going to have to be involved, be, you know, doing the marketing, all that, you know, kind of handling escalations and emails and, you know, just all those sorts of issues until we're about a $10 million firm. Beyond that point, then, you know, the level of marketing that you see in the community, those sorts of things, people kind of realize that you're the face, but you're not the person, you know, I'm in Orlando, John Morgan, Morgan Morgan is from Orlando, his headquarters are here, and he's everywhere, right? But nobody expects to get John because he's like on his estate in Maui, like, you know, nine months out of the year or whatever it is. Yeah. So, you know, obviously I am not, will probably never, I have no aspirations to get to his level. But the point of it is that, you know, once you get past a certain level, people aren't really expecting you anymore. Mm -hmm. So right now it is me involved in that. And I recognize that it is going to be for a minute, you know, and I will still always be involved with the marketing in some degree, being the face of the organization, just like John Morgan is, you know, like that guy's got like a whatever billion dollar firm or whatever it is. I don't know. Some obscene, but his face is on everything. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it makes sense too. Cause like, you know, that's, that's your strength and that's what you enjoy. Like that's a, you know, there's a, if you'd, you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you got out of the driver's seat for that. Right. Yeah. At least at this point, but uh, okay. That's super cool. And then as far as kind of like the rest of the contents of like, you know, so beyond the presentations and kind of those initial consultations, like have you um, gotten this? Uh, I mean, I imagine you guys, uh, you know, you're not personally doing a lot of the content marketing and that kind of stuff. Right. So how does, how does the marketing team like outside of the presentations? Yeah. So believe it or not, I have uh, one person who has just, she was, served let me see what did she do first she started with us as reception hmm. and you know then became kind of like a marketing assistant and now she does basically all of our uh, graphics design all of our social media content but like i'll say hey i want a presentation on pick a topic whatever she'll go design it fill in the content on it and then i'll go and edit it but it's normally 90 to 95 percent good like she's just picked up so much through reading the content that i've drafted and prepared over the years and having to you know research and create other pieces that she just kind of like knows what we do now and so it's easy for her to just kind of put together the stuff that we need so she fortunately has a lot of that content in her head Obviously, I still, if we're creating new pieces of content, I'm doing a lot of drafting on that. We do have some of the lawyers in the office who help with that too, but it's really a mixed bag. Kind of everyone pitches in, and I'm still pretty involved in it, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the other thing too. Like the delegating creativity is like a very, very tough thing. And plus, like, you know, with the experience you had at this point, like so much of that is in your head. I mean, it's also fantastic. You have somebody who can get something to 90, 95% too. I can definitely think there's a lot of people in your position who would kill for a person like that in that position. Yeah. So that's awesome. Okay. So I know uh, kind of like going on to the other attorneys too. Um, I know the other thing that we wanted to, um, okay. So I hate talking about marketing without talking about sales. And I know for sure that you're not handling on the consultations right now. So how do you guys as an organization think about, you know, what to do with all the, you know, I guess sales process and like what you guys are doing with all this business that you guys are generating from the marketing that you're doing? Yeah. So I have for, I think it's three out of the four of our practice areas. We have non-attorney salespeople. Oh, that's fantastic. That's super interesting. Love to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a, a big conversation, but I, I'm happy to talk about it. But yeah, so the one area that we do not do that in is guardianship currently, because we've just found that there can be some areas in guardianship that can be a little tricky to uncover. And our lead guardianship attorney wants to be kind of selective about what guardians, what guardianships we bring on, mm -hmm. especially because, you know, we are carrying, I think, somewhere close to 
about 350 open active guardianship matters. So, you know, and we have through some other, I'll say organizational sources, you know, corporate sources, whatever you want to call that, frequent referrals. So we have to keep kind of bandwidth open for those. So we're kind of selective about the, I'll say community guardianships that we take on. Yeah. And there's way more of a hangover for that stuff too, because, you know, those things can last for years if it gets in the way. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, until that person dies we're, or they age up to 18 or, or gain capacity, which rarely happens, yeah. you know, we're, we're on that. We're stuck on that. So, yeah. you know, those are the ones that she handles just about everything else. The non-attorney salespeople handle. We have two of them. We're probably going to be bringing on a third here within the next, I would say, three months. Okay, that's fantastic. And I'm, I'm guessing that's thinking of more like the transactional stuff and all that. Just but um to the devil's advocates in the crowds, right? Like, you know, I've heard this stuff all the time too. Well, how are you supposed to provide legal advice if you don't have an attorney in the consultation? I know there's an answer to it, but I'm really like, you know, what's your perspective to the to the doubters that that are that are thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, to that answer, I would say like that that's like saying, like, how do I let somebody drink my Slurpee without having them pay for it? Right. You know, I mean, the, the, the idea is ludicrous that I'm just gonna give somebody legal advice. You know, like giving away what is my stock and trade to somebody just because they walked in my office. I mean, okay, <laughs> if you're going to do a, a paid consultation, okay, sure. I can understand that a bit. And we do offer that. Mm-hmm. If people don't want to meet with, so our non-attorney salespeople, they're free. Come in, meet with them. They're going to understand your situation. They're going to figure out if we can help you. And then they're going to see if you're a good fit for our law firm, for our processes. If those things line up, we'll offer you the invitation to work with us. If not, we might refer you somewhere else. Yeah. But if we have someone who's like, no, I just want a lawyer. I just want to talk to a lawyer. You can talk to me, but you're going to pay to talk to me. So the vast majority of people choose to just meet with the non-terry salespeople. We call them uh, client needs coordinators. Mm. And, you know, they sit down with them and figure out what the try to unpack all the different things that are there. Obviously, sometimes it's not perfect. We give the attorneys ultimate decisions, whether or not, you know, we disengage from those clients or we need to upsell or downsell or change what was sold to them, you know, and, and the clients know that, but it takes, so, you know, the way I look at it is when I have an attorney doing a sales, that is the most expensive salesperson I will ever have. <laughs> Super true. Yeah. You know, and frankly, most lawyers are pretty terrible at sales. You know, they're not salespeople, they're technicians. They're thinking of like engineers, CPAs, like those type of people that love the law and love fixing, you know, and doing and going in there and trying to demonstrate value. Most of the time, they just go in there and give away the farm. You know, they're like, okay, here's exactly how we're going to do everything. Here's exactly what you need to do. You know, and then these people are like, well, shoot, what do I need you for? Yeah. So, you know, if we have non-attorney salespeople in there, they can't give legal advice. Bar rules prevent them from doing it. So all they can do is identify, do you have a problem? Okay, you have a problem. We can help you solve that problem. How? Well, we're going to schedule you for a design session or a strategy session with the attorney, and they're going to go through all the different options you have. I've heard them before talk about ideas such as this and this and this. I can't tell you that that's what's going to be right for you. You know, the attorney's going to make that determination. But those are just some examples of things I've heard them recommend in the past. Yeah. There you go. Dude, honestly, I might get on a soapbox a little bit too, because I think like this is just like a terrible, it's a terrible norm that's been established in the industry for since the beginning of it. And it's like, okay, to talk to somebody, you're giving away what, three, five hundred, maybe a thousand dollars worth of time to. And it's just mm. an absolute 
<laughs> like insane. Look, now more than ever with the unemployment rates in the legal industry and what it takes to get a good first year attorney, like I think we're kind of in a, a position as an industry where it's like a forcing function for people. Like, do you really need somebody with a JD to have this conversation? And honestly, I couldn't agree more. You know, all the Mount Rushmore of sales training, uh, all the Sandler stuff and all that stuff. It's like, you shouldn't be answering questions. If you're answering questions, you're losing in the sales conversation. Yeah. You should be asking questions. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, they need to be answering the questions. Yeah, but yeah. So, so dude, yeah, hundred um, percent. I I couldn't agree more on that. No, the one thing is that, like, you know, this is something I'm genuinely curious about. So, you know, it's always there are the norms about who you would get into the position, and you know, a lot of times you're leveling up a paralegal or an associate or a junior attorney to to, to kind of start going to these consultations. But when you take the JD out of the picture, where do you look for people to? be these, uh, you know, non-attorney salespeople. Frankly, I want salespeople. There you go. <laughs> I, I don't want <laughs> I mean, the concept that you're going to take a paralegal, somebody who's like good at handling cases and somehow make them good at selling people is lunacy to me. I want somebody who, you know, the, I hear, I've heard this statement, you know, that you can't make salespeople. I don't know that I totally agree with it, mm. but I do think there is because we have our salespeople in a regular routine training where they have daily calls, daily mindset wow. calls and yeah. weekly coaching calls. So it's nothing that we do. We pay for this. It's an outside vendor. Mm. But once we started that, our close rate doubled basically. So yeah, it's great. It's huge. That's great for us. So I, I'm a big believer in this, this program. But the point of it is I think you can make people more effective but I think there needs to be a base level of ability. And I think in a lot of cases, that's like a level of intuitiveness and personal connection that you can't teach somebody. You can teach them the script and how to ask the questions and things. And I've done that. Like I had a lawyer who was a very junior, junior associate. He was basically right out of law school. We hired him thinking, oh, we could give him, you know, train him right and everything. And it didn't work out. Okay. But go in there, he'd be dealing with, probate consult and he'd be asking questions and the answer would be like, Oh yeah, my mom just died three days ago, whatever. Be like, Oh, okay. And so did she leave any, like, <laughs> bro, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you don't recognize it in that moment, you need to be like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know what? And like show some empathy, connect with this person. Like they just lost somebody who's incredibly important to them. And I get it. He's trying to make sure that he collects all the information he needs to make sure he can prepare the documents. But like, that's not enough. Yeah. And you can't so, write the script for that. You can't write the script for that. No, no. <laughs> I can't you like tell you how to be compassionate. You know, yeah. you either get that or you don't. And, you know, I mean, for me, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with the predictive index or not. Is that disc? It's a, it's like a person. It's, it's like disc. It's more involved in disc. It's, it's a, in my opinion, better than a lot of a personality things out there, but I have a social factor that, you know, so one of the things is like social or like kind of like independent factor. Mine's like, I'm more social than like 99% of the people in this world. Mm -hmm. It's why I can never shut up. I'm just constantly talking, you know, I'm, I'm just sure I drive people nuts, but the bottom line is like, I connect with people and I want to connect with people. And then the whole legal aspect of it's kind of like an afterthought to me. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy sales. I enjoy connecting with people. It's just a terrible use of my time because I need to be spending it in other places. Mm -hmm. But that's what we look for. People who have at least enough of a social factor that they're going to be able to connect with people like intuitively. And then if they have sales experience, perfect. We're going to continue to build off that. If they don't, 
well, we're still going to try to coach them up and see if they can be successful in what they're doing. And sometimes they can, sometimes they can't, but that's kind of been our approach to it. And, and we've seen a lot of great success with that. Yeah, dude, that's fantastic. And it's, it's kind of, I, I got to take this from uh, another podcast host, Moshe Amsal. Like he really hates the term intake because when you use the term intake, people just, just, you know, they just try to dance around the fact that there has to be a sale that's going to be made. And mm-hmm. when we, we, prevent like even thinking about things in terms of sales we prevent looking for people that have the background in sales we prevent ourselves from training those people with sales material and we just wind up with cruddy salespeople at the end of the yeah. day and i just think like you know as an industry i think it's just like you know, it's just so important to move past that stuff and you know the people who are going to be doing that are going to be in the position where you are where you're out of the sales thing, you're probably, I can imagine like, you know, I remember the first time I got out of the situation and I looked at a retainer that was closed that I had nothing to do with. And I was like, damn, this is a really cool moment. And I know people are running multi-million dollar firms that still close their own deals. No, no joke. And it's like, you know, I will be candid and say that, you know, I do sometimes end up because people pay to meet with me. So I do it, but you know, I'll tell you that I went on a about 10 day vacation. We went overseas just a few weeks ago. And in that week when I was out of the office the whole time, it was actually the the first vacation where I've actually actually completely disconnected mm-hmm. and not tried to be involved with anything that was going on. I didn't check in with my team. I just like, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna focus on my family. I was for a wedding. We were over in Italy. It was wonderful. But in that week, we collected, I think, over a hundred thousand dollars. And I was not involved with any of it. That's a dream. That's a great <laughs> feeling. <laughs> God, that's so fantastic. Okay, awesome, man. So we're getting towards the end of the hour. And I just wanted to uh, to ask, you know, as far as kind of like a last question. So, you know, what's next for Family First Firm? Where are you guys looking to go? So everywhere. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> World <laughs> domination. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah. We're, um, what realistically we're probably going to be doing over the next year or so is going to be still expanding out of the central Florida area where we are currently trying to finish saturating is probably the best way I can describe it. I don't think, I think there's still a little bit of juice left to squeeze out of this area. And then we're probably gonna be hitting the major metropolitan areas around the state of Florida. I don't think we'll ever expand outside of the state, but my goal is to be the John Morgan, Mike Morris, whoever of elder law firm in Florida, you know, elder law, I should say in Florida, because realistically, you know, there is a lot of opportunity in this area. And I think we have probably the best head start on anybody out there. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, there's definitely enough people in Florida, enough old people in Florida, and you know, no one in this country is getting any younger. So it's a pretty good place to be. (laughs) Okay, awesome, Jeff. I've super appreciated the time. I think we're right at the, <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on. Dude, I think this was a fantastic conversation with a lot of stuff that some people need to hear. So thank you so much for being forthcoming with <laughs> your opinions on, on this stuff too. So it's been great. And then um, for anyone who's looking to get in touch, what's the best way to find you? You can check out our website at www.familyfirstfirm.com. I would say that's going to have all of our information. You know, you can reach out to us through that. Um, I mean, my email address is, Jeff, but it's G-E-O-F-F at familyfirstroom.com. So feel free to email me directly. I don't know how much help I can be to anybody, but you're welcome to reach out. Okay, awesome. I don't know. Let's see if any uh, young guns want to <laughs> join the team, start closing sure. like fire. <laughs> we'll see. Anyway. Okay, awesome. Jeff, thanks again so much for the time. And for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. 
For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.